Hello, and welcome to episode six of Making Sense, a Eurodollar University production. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and I am coming to you over the podcasting channels of iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. For those of you joining the simulcast on YouTube, you'll be able to see the graphs referenced in the show, as well as pose questions in the comments section below. Joining me, as always, is the Chief Investment Officer of Alhambra Investments, the Officer of the Offshore, Jeff Snyder. Morning, Emil. Great to see you again, Jeff. Jeff, you wrote 10 articles this week, and one of them was an absolute thriller. Now, I'm reading a book right now. It's a fiction book, and it's called Rogue Mail. And the reason I bring it up right now, it's a story about a guy who was in Europe, and he was doing something he shouldn't be. You can see the sniper rifle here. And he got caught, and now he's trying to escape. This book was written by Jeffrey Household in 1939. And you wrote a thriller, an absolute thriller. I'm not exaggerating this. For anyone who hasn't read this, I highly recommend it. It's at Real Clear Markets. The title is Don't Count on the Fed to Engineer a V-Shaped Recovery. Jeff, I thought this was a real thriller. I had never heard about what had happened before October 1929. Please tell us a little bit about it and how it relates to the theme of fragility, which is what we'll be discussing today. Well, you know, Emil, because it, it's, if in a lot of economic history, at least a lot of mainstream economic history, it's as if everything began in October 1929. As soon as the uh, Wall Street crashed, the stock market crashed in October 29, that's when all of the clocks started. That's when mainstream scholarship really started to kick in. And everybody starts, their, their, they're trying to understand what happened from October 1929 forward. It, it's as if everything that happened before October 1929 is uninteresting. It was the roaring 20s, and you know, we, really, we really don't need to know much about it. But there was this, this little-known episode that's been rendered as a footnote and even a, you know, a very minor footnote in history that began in the summer of 1929. And now I'm based in Florida, so this is kind of a, an added, added historical interest of me, of my own here. There was a Mediterranean fruit fly outbreak in this early spring, late spring, early summer of 1929. And of course, Florida being a heavy citrus producer and the Mediterranean fruit fly being a particularly verminous species of fruit fly, um, the, the potential for it to spread as a pandemic across not just the state of Florida, but the entire agricultural produce of the, the United States at the time was immense. And so, you know, the government responded in a way that would be very familiar and at home to us right now. They shut everything down. They went in and went scorched earth across all of the state of Florida. Any, any, any orchard where there were uh, Mediterranean fruit flies or larva or whatever kind of an infection, they burned the damn thing to the ground. They burned the wild, uh, the, the um, growing fauna that was, that was, or the flora and the fauna that was growing around the orchards. Strict quarantines, you know, state bans. They really went nuts on trying to uh, contain the outbreak of the business Mediterranean fruit fly. And again, this is the summer of 1929. And of course, with, uh, you know, an agricultural state like Florida at that time, most of its financial and banking system was very much exposed to the citrus and, and agricultural sector. So what you had was you had from the first first um, time uh, a Florida state inspector found the larva, and I think it was April 1929, until about June or July, you had a bank panic, a regional bank panic that took shape 
across what was the Federal Reserve's sixth district based in Atlanta. And this, you know, is unfolded in exactly the same way we would see, you know, across 1929, 30, and 31 nationally, where it was, you know, contagion. Rumors of weakness across one bank would, would, would lead to depositor runs throughout banks around in the surrounding area. There was lots of intricacies and connections between these banks in the state of Florida and, and also outside the state of Florida. But one of the ways that, uh, which was, you know, interesting and novel about how the sixth uh, district bank in Atlanta responded to the crisis was that its governor, Eugene Black, first of all, they decided to set up these uh, currency funds, which were, you know, sort of a correspondent system bailout. So a million dollars each, one in Tampa, one in New York, which was, a, it was, was the first time for the Federal Reserve really trying to respond to a systemic crisis by quote unquote printing money. They took, you know, cash, placed it in custodians in those two, those two cities in Florida with the idea that they'd be parcel them out to any, any banks that were short of reserves. And that would, that would help uh, uh, stem the tide of the bank run as, as it progressed. But they didn't work, of course. And then uh, there was a major failure in Tampa in June, I think it was July 1929, which precipitated all sorts of other, other bank failures from there. Jeff, really fast, you said it didn't work, of course. Why, of course? Well, one of the things that we have to understand about a bank run is it's not just psychology. It's, it's sort of like, you know, the proverbial s- snowball falling down, rolling down the hill. Once you become, once the, once the system becomes uh, uh, sufficiently weakened, we don't know where that point is. We don't know where the magic point is where there's a the point of no return. But once the system becomes weak and fragile, it's, it be, it's, it's no longer able to stand up to even the, the, mo- the smallest gusts of wind, for example. And so once you get into this point where, you know, the, the Florida banking system had been exposed to this fruit fly problem in the quarantine and all the potential losses that were going to be absorbed because of it, there really was kind of a no way back. And once the ball started rolling down the hill, the snowball started rolling down the hill, you know, a liquidity interruption, you know, as the Fed was trying to do with, the, with these currency funds in Tampa and Miami, it was, you know, it's, it's understandable where you think, well, I'll put, I'll put a million dollars. By that, you know, a million dollars, you can picture Dr. Evil. Oh, one million dollars. Oh, by that, back then, that was a huge sum. And the idea was if we parcel this, this, this currency, hard cash, in these two cities, it would it would it would it'd be enough to um, meet the demand of the public who are converting deposit liabilities into cash. And if we could satiate the public's demand for liquid cash, that would stop the run. It doesn't. It it it's a, it treats sort of the symptom of it rather than the cause, which is basically an overextended financial system, an overextended banking system. And so, not only did you have these currency currency funds that didn't uh, didn't end up uh, uh, meeting the crisis needs. We also had later in the year, Governor Eugene Black, who was head of the Atlanta Fed at the time, after the Citizens Bank failure in Tampa, that spread to banks in Gainesville and Orlando and all across the state. So he decided, you know what, we'll go big here. You can imagine almost like Jay Powell getting in his car and saying, you know, I've got a suitcase full of $6 million. If we did a million dollars in Tampa and a million dollars in Miami, early in the year. Let's, let's go to Tampa with $6 million. That's what he did. Legend has it. He packed up a suitcase with $6 million of the Atlanta Fed, Fed cash and drove down to Tampa to hand out personally to all of these banks to try to stop the systemic run. Unfortunately, uh, we don't really know whether or not that would have worked because when he did that, 
It was October 1929. By then, the major panic had started nationally. Well, there's two things I want to um, point out here. The first one is, like I told people at the beginning, this is an absolute thriller, right? There's a suitcase of money being driven across the state. Uh, and two, they, he didn't go in July, August, or September, but in October. Is that right, Jeff? And that speaks yeah. a little bit to the problem that we're facing today, is even if these policies, these liquidity policies could work, if they were big enough, it, it takes a long time for the bureaucracy to respond. It took them months to respond. And that's what we're going to be seeing again this time around. Yeah, and it's never, you know, I we say this all the time, nothing ever goes in a straight line. And we know, we know that. I mean, just our own, our own experience in 2008, it wasn't a single event. You know, the, cra the, the Great Depression, the crash from 1929, it, it sounds like the Great Depression was, okay, cause and then effect. Well, it wasn't that way at all. There's all these twists and turns, these ebbs and flows. And even if you have a, you know, think about that from the perspective of, of Eugene Black or, you know, any kind of Federal Reserve official, one day it looks like it's the end of the world. I got to do something. I got to pack up my suitcase and get $6 million down to Tampa real quick. But then the next day it looks like everything's fine. Everything's going back to, everything's going back to normal. The system is normalizing itself. And so, you know, it's, it's very difficult, especially from the perspective of a bureaucracy like the Federal Reserve or any government entity that's charged with overseeing financial um, considerations. Because it doesn't go in a straight line, because there's these ebbs and flows, there's all sorts of chances where you think, okay, I got to act today, but then tomorrow the urgency has gone. And then when the urgency has gone, a lot of times what happens is you think, well, what I did yesterday must have had the positive effect I was looking for. It's confirmation bias. And rather than seeing these twists and turns for what they are, which is just human nature, the ebbs and flows of markets and how, how systems progress, we tend to assign our own uh, if, you know, human biases to that situation where when it's going right, it must be because I was, I was being effective. And for anyone who wants to learn more about this, check out the article and you list some amazing examples from uh, very important people of the day who said it's over. We've passed the worst of it, including Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, Alfred Sloan, Dr. Julius Klein, um, Harvey Firestone, the Federal Reserve, Bankers Monthly. Amazing how they thought that the worst was behind them, but really it was just the ebbs and flows. It was the it seemed like it was over, but the system was breaking down. The system was fragile going into it. It had reached its limit, and there was no turning back. But as you say, nothing goes in a straight line. Let's bring this up to the present. Let's talk about fragility today. And in your second article, uh, you write about the unpossibly pure signal. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, the point here, you know, when I write about especially the Great Depression, I'm not saying we're going to repeat the Great Depression, but what we can learn from it is, you know, immediately when we talk about the 30s, you're drawn to the idea of bank panic. We had one in 2008, therefore we're saying there's another bank panic. That's not what we're really talking about here. And ultimately, I think the lesson we learned from the, the, from the Great Depression isn't so much about banks and Federal Reserve and central banks. It's the inherent weaknesses in certain systems that become apparent 
and then learning their signals and learning what it means when the system is fragile. It doesn't mean that we're, the world's going to end and we're going we're to repeat 1933 all over again. It just means that, you know, the, the possibility of things going so correctly that we get out of this without any damage at all, that we have this mythical V-shaped recovery, is probably a low probability to the point where it's, it's, it's probably not even possible at all. And as you mentioned, you know, I brought up in the article how throughout, especially 1930, everybody thought, well, this thing is going to go right again because that's what happens. They didn't realize the, the, the systemic fragility that was apparent, very apparent by then. And so that's really the lesson we need to understand. And that's what we really want to look at is fragility, systemic condition, underlying, underlying fundamentals, which as you point out, you know, we, we had all sorts of warnings <laughs> during what were supposed to be the best of times over the last decade, 2017 and 2018, when the bond market kept saying, no, no, this thing isn't this, this inflationary, globally synchronized growth recovery, it's not happening. And not only that, the curves, the flattened curves in 2017 and 2018 told you that the risks of another systemic event were growing all of the time during what were supposed to be the best of times. Now you said flat curves. Are you referring to the back half of the U.S. Treasury yield curve and how that had flattened out at a very low rate? Yeah, exactly. Because if globally synchronized growth had been a real thing and not just a bumper sticker slogan, if there had been an inflationary breakout ahead of us, you know, looking forward from 2017 into the future, what we should have seen was what everybody was talking about in the mainstream, a huge bond route. What that would have meant for the curve was it would have steepened way out, way more than, you know, I mean, you would have seen the 10-year go up to four, maybe even 5% if it was a real globally synchronized growth recovery type thing. So what we should have seen at that time was not just nominal rates rising at the short end, they should have risen much faster at the long end. So the curve would have steepened way out. Instead, what happened was the curve hit about 3% nominal and stopped. That was a huge warning sign that said, hey, this is not happening. This is the bond market saying, well, we don't know when, but the risks are rising that we're going to repeat these liquidity, these periodic intermittent liquidity events that we've had over the last dozen years. That was a curve warning that the system had not become resilient, as Janet Yellen used to like to say. We're not seeing the inflation that Jay Powell was talking about, and there's systemic weakness throughout. So the 3%, does that represent the amount of return that investors demand from the government in, as opposed to going out into the market, into the real economy, and earning more? Is that a one way of looking at it as the, this is the going rate of economic activity in the future for which I need to be compensated for by the government for me to forego what I could be earning in the, in the real economy. And therefore the yeah. bond market was saying, ah, we're not gonna have to pay more than 3% because that's the level of ec economic activity in the future. Whereas in August of 2007, it was, at 5%. Yeah, I think, Emil, that's really the point you want to make is that we're not, we don't compare the curve necessarily to where it was yesterday. It's, you know, we're, we're, you know, a historically unique period here. You know, very few periods in history see interest rates this low throughout, throughout, uh, for a prolonged period of time. So you're right. The fact that it flattened out at 3% was a commentary on lack of economic opportunity outside of the treasury market. We're willing to get paid. 3% during what everybody seems to think is a boom, what are the best of times. 
when if it was a normal period, and you know, the middle 2000s wasn't exactly the most robust economic period, in especially US history, we gotten paid 5% for safety, which was because there's so much more opportunity elsewhere. So the fact that the curve stopped at 3% or a little bit, you know, here or there, around 3%, not just the US Treasury curve, the yield curve, also, you know, Euro dollar futures and a, bo a bunch of other places. What that said was the bond market was saying, we're not seeing the next step beyond, which was supposed to be the positive step. The one that everybody was talking about, you know, interest rates have nowhere to go up. The bond market curve was saying, no, we're, we're just not seeing it. The risks of another deflationary event, another economically depressive event were growing by the day. And this is 2018, 2018. So that by the end of the year, while Jay Powell was still thinking about rate hikes and inflation, the curve had inverted and flipped what said, too late. We've, we've passed that point. We're heading into another downturn. That's right, because that was the, the last quarter of 2018 was when most uh, famously oil prices began to crash very quickly in a very short amount of time. But it wasn't in isolation. It was, the, it was uh, leading up to it. We started at the beginning of the year with uh, currency crises in the emerging markets we saw the inversion of the euro dollar curve in the middle of the year, June, July, if I remember correctly. And uh, by the end of the year, it started showing up in real economic activity. And that continued for a whole year in 2019. Sure, we took a little bit of pause to, to factor in what the central banks were doing to consider whether or not these latest pauses and in interest rate hikes would in any way avert what was what you and I call the fourth euro dollar crisis of the last 12 years, but that didn't quite happen. And then that led into the, the COVID crisis and the government response to it. And so the latest GDP numbers have come out right now for Europe and the United States, and they're very bad. But in an article, you, two articles, you wrote that they're actually much worse than what we should have expected suggesting the system was fragile going into it. Yeah, and I think, you know, before we get into the GDP numbers, I want to back up again for a moment about the Treasury rally. Because now we're hearing what is essentially gaslighting, which is, oh, the reason the bonds have rallied, first of all, nobody saw it coming, right? Because if you listen to Bloomberg or CNBC or any of the mainstream media channels throughout 2018, even 2019, it was all everything's fine, the economy's strong, there's no reason for rally in tre Treasury. You know, so, supposedly there was no way to foresee this Treasury rally coming. And the reality is that if you listen to Jay Powell, that's true. But if you don't listen to Jay Powell and realize what the bond market is, the bond market is the Fed's biggest critic, you realize this Treasury rally wasn't unforeseen at all. In fact, it was probably, I don't want to say inevitable, because nothing is 100% inevitable, but the way that bond market had behaved before the end of 2018 told you that the risks were rising that this was going to happen. And now it's gotten even worse, especially in early 2020, where people are saying, well, okay, first of all, no one saw the treasury rally coming because everything was great. And then all of a sudden we had coronavirus. And that the, 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 the price of uh, the yields of US treasuries are so low now because the Fed wants them that way. That's really the big thing that, that I want to concentrate on. And I spent a lot of time on is, no, the Fed does not control interest rates. It doesn't control, I mean, we can, we can have a pretty, we can do a whole podcast about short-term interest rates and how they're, how they disconnected to the Fed. But forget, I mean, long-term interest rates, 
The Fed does not control the bond market, but yet that's what people are led to believe. In fact, that is what central bankers believe. You know, go back to Alan Greenspan in 2005 when he talked about his quote-unquote conundrum. Well, his conundrum was nothing more than the guy thinking he controlled the bond market. He thought, I raise interest rates, the bond market obeys. When it, back in 2005, the bond market was saying, okay, Alan, there's too much risk here. There's something called a housing bubble. You don't see it. We do. So even back in 2005, here's Alan Greenspan saying, well, I control the bond market, and for some reason, it's not listening to me. Well, because you don't control the bond market. That's what, that's what you know, we're all taught, and I know you know this too, because you were taught the same way, you're brought up in the same tradition. The Fed controls everything. It's omniscient. It's omnipresent. It's, it's everywhere. It controls long-term interest rates. And if you believe that, and if you're part of that cult, if you believe in that ideology, then no, you did not see the Treasury rally coming. You thought 2018 was a boom. You thought there was inflation going to happen. But if you understand that the Fed is not what everybody says it is, what you're taught to believe the Fed is, then you understand the bond market is independent. And therefore, it gives us an independent, very clean, very pure signal about what's going on in the economy, in the monetary system, in the financial system, all these important factors that added up, especially 2018 forward, to hey, this situation is going increasingly fragile. Long before we get to coronavirus, long, long before we hear anything about Wuhan or anything about COVID, the situation was becoming untenable by, you know, before we even got to 2020. Let me make, you said that there's a cult. And I think some people may react negatively to that. They say, how, now we're very educated, modern. Uh, we don't fall for things like cults. But let me make the analogy of the rain-dancing shaman back in the mists of time when we, this was also an individual that was highly educated, highly credentialed, wore great clothes, was friends with all the important people, had the respect of all the authorities. And it seemed like sometimes when the shaman would dance, things would go along. There would be a good run. But really, the weather system was... Uh, a complex system of nonlinearity, emergence, spontaneous order, adaption, feedback loops. It's the same thing here, but in a modern twist. We look at the weather system. It's called the market. It's unbelievably complex. And yet we believe that this modern shaman goes out there, dances, says, uses some very fancy language, very fancy models, Things that we don't understand, me, you do, but other people, normal people, they don't understand it. Well, they must know what they're talking about. It seemed to have been working, but now, no, no. It was a cult. We wanted to believe that somebody was in charge, but it's beyond our control. And that system, when it gets fragile, it unwinds. But I think you made an important point there too, Emil, is that, um, it, it, you know, cult may be a little bit too harsh, but I mean, Look, the, the, the point here is we're supposed to be pursuing a scientific endeavor, which is we follow evidence. We look at, you know, and for evidence, the, the highest form of evidence to, to me is markets, because the markets are telling you what a broad survey of everybody's doing. And if the markets are not, you know, the bond market yield is disagreeing with the Fed, why is it disagreeing with the Fed? Why are people still siding with the Federal Reserve? Why are they ignoring the evidence? And it's not just the last couple of years. Again, Greenspan's conundrum was 2005. You've got decades of market. I mean, the global financial crisis in 2008. How do you reconcile that with the idea of the Fed? And so, my, 
My point is calling it a cult is, yes, it's a little too harsh. You're right. It's an ideology, but it's an ideology where evidence has been, uh, it's either dismissed, ignored, or tortured so that it, it, it somehow we can turn into evidence into uh, the direction that everybody believes. And that's what's happened now. That's what's going on right now. People are trying to say that treasuries are up in price because the Fed wanted it that way. Because Jay Powell cut interest rates. They're buying, in, they're buying bonds through QE. And it's just not true. The evidence says conclusively, and it's not just bond market, it's you know, realities, it's, it's the economy, it's the situation we're in. The Federal Reserve does not control all that much, especially doesn't control interest rates. Joined by Jeff Snyder, Chief Investment Officer of Alhabra Investments. You can find him on Twitter at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP. Jeff, looking forward by looking backward. We just had GDP reported in the US and Europe. It was bad, but more bad than people would have expected. And that tells us how deep the hole we're in is and how long it'll take us to come out of it. Tell people a little bit about the GDP in the United States and Europe. Well, you know, that's, that's really the point. Because look, we all, knew, we all knew the second quarter was going to be a disaster. That's not a surprise. That's not a shock. The numbers that are going to come out for Q2 are going to be very much 1930 style. We're going to have GDP that's minus 30 or some, some ridiculously awful number. We know that. But what we didn't expect to find was such shocking weakness in Q1. Because Q1 was supposed to, to show how this system is very resilient, that we're very strong, that we had a good start, a good foundation from which to build to the other side, because that's really what we care about. You know, we know that the short run's gonna be disaster, we know it's gonna be awful. And so what we wanna know is how quickly do we come back and how far, do we, how close do we get back to normal? I mean, the most ideal situation is that we have a huge downturn and then an equal and even more powerful upturn, the V-shaped recovery. But if we started out in such a fragile, weak situation, what does that tell you about what happens after we get through the Q2 awfulness? Well, if we're weak to start with, what is the possibility that we're going to be very strong on the other side of this? Because this is not just a bunch of numbers, it's about systems. It's about how we, how we actually work. If the economy was strong, then businesses could survive a short-term disruption, even, as, even a big one. They could survive it without you know, laying off all their workforce. If, however, they're weak heading into an event, a shock like this, they're not gonna survive. They're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna at the very least shrivel and shrink and lay off a bunch of their capacity and become a much, much smaller part, a much smaller of what they used to be compared to what they used to be. So that's what really matters. If we started out weak, the entire system doesn't have the ability to maintain itself in the same way as we would expect if we're going into the V-shaped recovery. And as you pointed out, Emil, these initial Q1 numbers are just, you know, to me, they're just, they speak and they just scream fragility. Um, if we look at GDP in the U.S. during the first quarter, it was minus 5% first quarter. We know Q2 is going to be bad, but minus 5% in the first quarter. And you think, well, how bad is that? What is, what is first quarter at minus 5%? That would be the second worst quarter of 2008. I mean, it, it's, it's worse than it was in the first quarter of 2009. And the point that you make in the article is that that terrible quarter in 2008 was the full quarter from get-go, from October 1st through December 31st, everything was going south. This first quarter, 
January, February, people didn't know. It was like March-ish when things started to turn and government began to say, we need to shut things down. So we're not really looking at a full quarter, a virus at least, virus and government-related effects. We're looking at a few weeks, let's call it three, of government-related, virus-related uh, shutdowns and pain to the economy. Was it all virus? No. As you say, it wasn't all virus. We were already heading down in the first quarter. Right. And you look at, I mean, some of the intermediate statistics and, you know, for example, uh, uh, you know, business investment, import, some of the other numbers where, you know, you could see, you know, fixed investment, which is capital expenditures, business spending. It was down four straight quarters. So the first quarter of 2020 was the fourth consecutive negative. The economy was already heading down. Again, you know, the bond market nailed the weakness. Um, But really, the big one was uh, consumer spending, which you can see fell at nearly an 8% annual rate. You're right, Emil. It's it's important to point out that here in the fourth quarter of 2008, you had a full three months to digest global financial crisis number one. Lehman Brothers, AIG, Wachovia, all those things hit in September. Then the October, November, December quarter, you had... You had massive problems with everybody, you know, the weakness in the labor force. We only have half a quarter of that here in personal consumption expenditures fall by an 8% rate. That is the fourth worst in the entire series. And you have to go back to the second quarter of 1980 to find something so bad. I mean, that's double the worst quarter of 2008 in terms of consumption. For any millennials joining us, the fourth quarter of 1980 did not make the top 10 list for great hits in the United States economy, economic history. No, I mean, it's, you know, the second quarter of 1980 was one of the worst quarters in economic history. It was a very short, sharp recession where interest rates and inflation were both in the double digits, which, I mean, today sounds, sounds like it's from the moon, you know, something completely alien to our current condition. But under, it's the same point we've been making throughout. You know, we're comparing to the second quarter of 1980, which was a very fragile monetary disruption period where it wasn't, you know, we shouldn't expect V-shaped recovery because 1980, you know, there was no recovery from 1980 until December of 1982. It took an additional almost two years to finally work out through the underlying mess before we got into real economic growth again. Jeff, can you talk a little bit about the inventory discounting, the write-offs, and that the fire sales have not even begun and how there's a deflationary shock that's yet to come. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, if you look at the inventory number, inventory shrank in the first quarter by only about nine billion, where that, that was the change. And you look, what happens in recessions is something like this, on, and what you see in 2008, where businesses, because sales are falling and they hold too much inventory, not only do they stop ordering new product, which depresses production in the, in the, in the short run, in the current intermediate terms, but then they have to start discounting and even liquidating the inventory they have just to try to survive. That's the really the deflationary impulse, the deflationary shock. And what you see is in every recession, every business inventory cycle contraction, inventory ends up getting sold and, 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 and worked down in that manner, such that that's what ends the, the recession. That's where we get through the cyclical, the end of the cyclical process. But what the BA reported here was we're, we're just at the beginning here. We're not, we're not even close to that kind of a situation yet. So that, that portends a depressionary, deflationary impulse that will extend beyond just the second quarter and maybe into the third and fourth quarter for the rest of the year. 
which will depress the production side of the economy. Again, this all goes back to the idea of it's a fragile system, just like in 1929 and 33, despite Eugene Black's efforts, despite our efforts today by the Federal Reserve, the probabilities are against them because the system is so much larger, so much more complex and unmanageable by any one entity that like an avalanche, how do you put an avalanche back together or toothpaste back in the tube? It's just coming out. It's going to be hard to stop. Jeff, we only have a few minutes left. What about our European friends? They're doing much better, right? They've got castles, great food, wonderful lifestyle. How is their GDP? Yeah, it's funny you say the word avalanche because that's, that's exactly the right word to use for Europe. As bad as it was in the U.S., look, I mean, these European numbers just boggle the mind. Again, we knew the second quarter was going to be a disaster, but look at these numbers for the first quarter for across Europe. We also knew going in, by the way, the bond markets told us that Europe was in worse shape than the U.S. was at the start. I mean, you go back to the fourth quarter, I mean, Europe was on the poise on the precipice of recession already entering 2020. So uh, Europe was in much worse shape, much weaker, much more fragile situation to begin this year than the U.S. was, which is why I think you see these kinds of collapses. I mean, European GDP fell by nearly 4% in the first quarter, which doesn't sound, I mean, that's, that's better than the U.S. At least it sounds like it's better than the U.S., but the Europeans report their numbers at a quarterly rate. So putting it in, in apples to apples terms, that's a, 14% drop in GDP in the first quarter. It's, it's just, it's, it boggles the mind how bad this is. And it was even worse in certain places like uh, France and Italy, where you see, these, you see these statistics. France was minus, almost minus six, which is a 25% annual rate in the first quarter. I mean, it's just it, nothing like it in history. We've not even, I mean, we're not even in the, the, the Great Recession 2008-2009 isn't even in the same ballpark as Q1. Uh, Italy, almost the same, almost minus five as a quarterly, quarterly rate. And you look, I mean, Italy's an economy that's a perfect example of lack of recovery. They're down here already when, you know, that's the same as the economy was in 2000. So they've lost 20 years of growth, or they haven't really experienced growth, but 20 years of output in, in one step. And it's, it's a combination of we have a lack of recovery for 12 years, the fragile situation, and it just the system just buckles. And that's what we're seeing in these GDP numbers, these shocking GDP numbers from the first quarter that you, you know, like we've been saying, fragile. It's, it's a situation that began this outbreak, began this shock in a really bad, bad state. And the graph that Jeff was showing for Italy is an important one because it shows uh, absolute dollars of GDP and if you don't see it on the YouTube simulcast, just imagine a set of stairs. And the first set uh, begins in 2008. Then you take a step down in 2011. You take another step down recently. And you are actually lower. Your GDP, your output, is at levels it was in in the year 2000. And uh, we don't have time to get into the socio-political geo. Uh, political consequences of this, but uh, it seems as if we're approaching the end of an era, and that's when this virus came. It didn't come in just any random year. It came at the end of six years of political upheaval, at the end of 12 years of monetary disorder, and, and in that article, Jeff, I've been reading your work for four and a half years now, 
you said something that you haven't said, I don't know, ever, but you wrote, quote, a second leg down in a multi-decade depression. You do not use the D word. You always put recession in quotes, implying that things that maybe it wasn't a recession, maybe it was something else, but you have finally said the D word. Are you, can you talk a little bit about, is it a change of heart or what, why did you write that? Well, when you use the D word, when you say depression, people have a very visceral emotional response to it. And they, they look around and they say, well, this cannot be a depression because life appears to be very much like normal. And my daily, in, my daily existence, I don't see what I imagine the 1930s must have looked like. The reality is the 1930s to the people living in it probably looked a whole lot like we would, we would consider today. For most people, life went on. Even at the height of the depression, you know, three out of four people were working. So yes, it was a ma massive problem and it was nasty, but people, they have a very emotional response to the word depression. So that's why I, I, I often avoid using it because if you do use the word depression, people shut down. They don't, they don't listen to anything you have to say because, you know, you've used the D word, you must be some kind of crank. There's nothing valuable in what you're saying. It's, 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 an, it's entirely emotional. But here we are in 2020 where it doesn't seem as far-fetched to the, the average person on the street now because we're seeing daily disruptions. And I, I realize they're non-economic in nature, these shutdowns, but if we get past the shutdowns and it, and it goes the way that it seems to be setting up to be, to be heading, where we don't get a V-shaped recovery, we get sort of an L-shaped recovery, then you're going to start associate that lack of economy, that lack of output, that lack of opportunity in your daily life you're going to be more, more, uh, more uh, able to receive or more able to uh, appreciate the word depression because you'll see it. It won't be some kind of abstract, abnormal, you know, concept that you know, applies to movies we see in black and white. And in retrospect, we'll be able to look back and see that it was a multi-decade depression. That's the other point I want to underline. You're not just saying depression, you're saying multi-decade. It didn't start in 1920, much like Japan's depression is a multi-decade depression. So, Jeff, I had a wonderful time. Can't wait to do it again next week. For interested listeners, you can find Jeff at Alhambra Investments. He has a daily blog. You can find him on YouTube at the Alhambra Investments website. You can find him at Real Clear Markets, online at, uh, on Twitter, at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP. And you can find me on Twitter as well, at Emil Kalinowski. And we will talk to everyone again next week.